Well, good morning, everyone. If you will look to your left and then look to your right, you will notice there must be some event going on out of town. I, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know why people would make decisions like that. Going to a wedding of a dearly beloved uh, daughter of this church. So uh, we praise the Lord for that, for that wedding, for Claire Marie's wedding. And we look forward to um, uh, having the wards back and uh, look forward to God's blessing on that, that couple. What an amazing thing. What a joyful thing. And so uh, the result is we get to have a more inter- uh, intimate environment this morning, which I'm, I'm fine with. Um, before we uh, go on, let me go ahead and uh, pray for us, and we will get started with our time together. Father, we come to you this morning, and we do rejoice with uh, Claire Marie and Sam and uh, the joy of their union, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless uh, ongoing their marriage, that their marriage would be honoring to you, would be a joy to them, would be uh, something that's useful to your kingdom, that would be an example to those around them. Uh, what a great and uh, wonderful thing. Pray for your blessing, every blessing on that family. Uh, Father, thank you for that. Thank you that we get to uh, be together this morning. I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be with my church family. And uh, I do pray that you'd bless our time as we open your word this morning. It's already been a blessed time in fellowship and in singing and uh, worshiping you in song that way and in a baptism. Uh, what, a great, uh, what a great morning. We get to celebrate what you have done, what you are doing in Christ. And I pray that this time as we uh, come to your word would be a continuation of that. We look forward to hearing uh, what you did all of those centuries ago in the New Testament church. We look forward to uh, hearing about um, your work then, and we look forward to seeing your work in our lives now. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time together. I pray that you would be honored. I pray that you would do your work in us by your spirit. Be lifted up now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and you have in your bulletin there an outline that will uh, help you kind of walk through what we're going to be talking about this morning from our passage. And um, like I said, I am happy, very happy to be back from our time in Africa. We were there for a little over two weeks, Andy and I were, and we had a blessed time. It was wonderful to see uh, the Lord at work there. It was kind of... um, I don't even know the right word for it, but to, to wake up and, and uh, go and worship with believers halfway around the world who speak an entirely different language, who look very different, whose culture is very different, and their whole lives are very different, and yet they're focused on Jesus. And it was, so it was wonderful to see the Lord at work there. And, uh, and we, we, we loved that time. However, I'm not going to tell you much more about it because next week we'll be focused on a report time uh, on that. Uh, Andy and I will both get to share with you kind of our impressions and some, uh, some photos and maybe video and may- maybe some audio if I can figure out how to do that right because I recorded some of their singing, uh, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but, that, but the report is going to be next week. And so this week um, we're going to be focused on our passage and, and our time in Africa will come up a little bit, but, uh, but you will hear. Trust me, you will hear uh, more about it, and we're happy to talk about it. But we are glad to be home. This, this is our church family. This is our family. And so we're glad to be back with you all. I'm glad to open the word together with you to sing together. I leaned over to my wife during singing and said, I'm not sure I sang, you know, except in the shower maybe, for a month. I haven't, I haven't sang for a month. And so um, it was odd, you know, because I didn't understand their songs. And, and um, they probably wouldn't have been happy if I sang with them anyway, just... But that, that being as it may, it was wonderful to worship the Lord together with you to be home in our home church. And uh, we are excited about what God 
is doing in Africa. And we're excited. I'm very excited about what God is doing here at Parkside and, uh, and through us at Parkside. So it's wonderful to be back. We're going to be uh, speaking from Acts chapter 6 this morning. And, and you can see the title of the message is Preaching Under Attack. And, uh, and this passage talks about preaching and a couple of different attacks that are, that are levied against preaching in this context. And, uh, and really, uh, that was something that Andy and I noticed a lot in uh, Burundi and in Rwanda was the, uh, the attack that there is on preaching there. And the attack there is very different. There are some attacks from without. The government has decided that, uh, that every church needs to have a paved parking lot. It doesn't seem like a big deal until you start realizing how much money it takes to do that and that most of the people there don't drive anyway. So I'm not sure why they need a paved parking lot, but they do. They also need sound panels on the inside of their church buildings because their worship can be really loud and disturbing to neighbors and whatnot. And so they now have to soundproof their buildings and they need a lightning rod on their, on their church, which actually is a good idea. Just a couple of months ago, there was a lightning strike during a church service and 14 people were killed. In, in Kigali. And so this law did not come about as a result of that. Actually, they had passed the law, and then after that, the lightning strike happened. Those are attacks from without, and, and I don't know the motivation of, of the government, but uh, the result is that churches that can't meet those requirements have been shuttered for a while until such time as they can meet those requirements. So pastors aren't preaching in their churches, and uh, people have to walk to a neighboring church if they can get that far. And so uh, there are attacks from without, but the attacks from within that, that are in, uh, in Africa are much more devastating, it seems to me, because they, uh, first of all, they don't have any, any training. 95% of African pastors have zero training. Uh, and those that have some training have a little bit of training, and it could be sketchy at that. And so they don't have, um, they, they didn't go to class or to school to learn how to preach, learn how to exegete scripture, learn how to exposit scripture for, for people around them. And so they're doing the best they can, but without training and really without example, because very often in Africa, the, the preaching that goes on, the best kind of preaching, or uh, if it's, if it's uh, relatively good preaching, will be reading a few verses and then speaking for a half an hour, kind of off the cuff or on a, whatever topic the pastor wants to talk about. Well, that's kind of loosely connected with Scripture, but that's, that's about the best thing going on. More typically, it's a prosperity gospel that's being proclaimed. And so you have, you have pastors who are preaching that uh, if you are a blessed Christian, that means you are a rich Christian and a healthy one. And if you're not rich and if you're not healthy, you're, you're really kind of lacking in the faith department. So step it up a little bit and probably step up your giving to the church. That'll help you do that. And that's kind of the, the message that gets preached very often in Africa. And um, so preaching is under attack. And uh, so that was the purpose of us being there was to train preachers to teach them how to study and, and explain God's word, how to stay on task. And so we saw very clear attacks on preaching there. And as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to see that there were some very clear attacks on preaching here. So if you would, uh, you're in Acts chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. And then in a moment, uh, when we get that far, we will read the next uh, portion. Starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so we see here in our passage an internal threat to preaching. And it may not jump off the page at you right, right off the bat that it's a threat uh, to preaching, but as we work through the story, I think you'll see that really that's what it was. The church is growing, and despite persecution, despite people being arrested and beaten and all of that, uh, the church is growing and uh, disciples are being added to the group and there's a great expansion going on. And, and as often happens, when something grows very quickly, you have growing pains. And the church experienced growing pains. Uh, but, the, but there was a wonderful thing going on um, with, with all of these, uh, this multiplication of disciples. But there was a ministry that they had where uh, they were taking care of widows in the church and they were providing for their needs. And there was a daily distribution to help provide for the needs of widows. And, and so that's what they were doing. And, and uh, they were, they, they, uh, the Old Testament strongly encouraged and you know, said that the kingdom of God will be, uh, will be evident by widows being taken care of uh, within the kingdom. And so they were... They were very concerned to take care of the widows, but in doing so, they, they kind of fell out of balance with what they were doing. There were, there were two different groups here. Living in Jerusalem, you had people who were from the area, and their native culture and their native language was, was Hebrew, or really Aramaic. Um, Hebrew had kind of passed away by this time, and Aramaic was the spoken language, but they're so closely related, they're, they're referred to as Hebrew. And so that was their culture. They had grown up in, in Israel. They had grown up in Jerusalem. And so that, that was their culture. That was their language. Those were the locals. They were Jewish, and they, that was, they were the locals. And they made up a, some portion of, of the early church. And there was another group. The Hellenists, those who had grown up in the, the, the diaspora, as we call it, or the, uh, the, the Jews who had been scattered outside of Israel, and maybe they had grown up in maybe Rome or maybe in Corinth or, or in Athens or, or uh, wherever. They had grown up somewhere else in a, in a Greek culture, a Greek-speaking culture. And so they were Jews, but they grew up in a different culture. And so they spoke differently. They saw the world differently. They had their own culture. And so you have kind of these two cultures simultaneously uh, inhabiting this, this church there in Jerusalem. And, and through uh, no, um, no fault of theirs, other than just maybe oversight, one group of widows was being better taken care of than the other group of widows. We have no indication here that there was any kind of rancor in, in that or that there was any plan or that they really didn't want those lousy Greeks to be here or anything like that. We just see that you had two different groups and one group was better taken care of. And so you have a complaint that, uh, that arises. It's a murmuring uh, arising by the Hellenists or the, the Greek-speaking Jews against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so... You know, it, it's easy to take care of a ministry when it's a very small ministry. I mean, it has its challenges, right? But it's relatively easy to do when it's, when it's kind of small. But as it grows and gets larger, the problems get larger, right? And the ministries grow and get more complex. And so this was growing pains that they were experiencing there. And so that's the situation. And how did the, how did the, 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 the 12 respond? What was their concern? Well, you see there in verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said to him, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. We, we have a priority. We have a concern of what we're doing. And we need to be about doing that thing. 
Remember, these, these are the 12. These are the ones who had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. They had learned directly from him. They had been taught by him. They had been trained by him for all of those years. They had spent time with him. And then, and then he died. And when he was, when he was raised, he spent time with him. So they, they, had, they had the full benefit of his ministry. And what was his ministry to them? Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. That was to be their ministry. They were to focus on teaching God's word. Jesus had invested all of that time in them so that they would understand the, the Old Testament, not just understand that, you know, Moses wrote the first five books and, or David was the king. They knew that stuff, but to understand how it pointed to Christ. And so he had spent all of his time with them ministering, teaching them how the Old Testament pointed to him, teaching them how really he was the fulfillment of all of that, uh, the prophecies and the, and the figures and the types and all that, that it pointed to him. And so they, they had received that teaching and it was their job to pass that on to other people. And there was a danger. There was an internal struggle, a temptation even, to go and meet this other, to turn away from that ministry and go and meet this other need. And the apostles were concerned not to do that. And that's why they said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They weren't saying that waiting on tables, serving tables, arranging potlucks, taking care of the needs of the widows was a, was a lesser ministry. It just wasn't the ministry that was primarily theirs. They had been entrusted with this deposit from Jesus and it was their job, it was their life to pass that on to the church. And they, they, they dare not pause in doing that to take care of other things lest the ministry of the word suffer. And so uh, you, have, you have that as their concern. They didn't want to divert their attention. They, they, they didn't want to take their, their eye off of the ball. Jesus had given them a task. They dare not take their eye off of that task to take care of something else that's also very good. It's a good ministry to take care of widows. It's an, it's an evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God when widows are provided for. And so that's an instruction that they had from the Old Testament. Uh, we see that continued on into the New Testament, but it wasn't to be their main concern. These were 12 very unique men who had been given a task of preaching and teaching. And they dare not take their eye off of that, even for a very good ministry like this. And so they wanted to come up with a solution. And so they come up with a worthy solution. And I say worthy because they, uh, they summoned everybody together and they said, we can't take our, our eye off of the ball. We need to continue preaching the word of God, not serving tables. Therefore, verse 3, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so he was saying, choose worthy men from among you to take care of this. He, he wasn't the one saying, uh, here, uh, the, the apostles weren't saying, here, do, you know, these are the seven we want you to, to uh, confirm or whatever. He said, choose from among you uh, some men, seven of them, and here are requirements. They need to be godly men. They need to be worthy men. They need to be capable of, of carrying out and fulfilling this ministry. And so he, uh, the, the, the apostles wanted them to select those, and, and really that's what they did. And it's interesting to me when, when the, the congregation chose these seven people and you read through them, you have Stephen, we're going to read about Stephen, and, you read, and Philip, we're going to read about Philip in a bit. Those two play a large role in the next couple of chapters. And then Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. Those are all Greek names. Remember what the original problem was. 
it was a struggle between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers, right? The, the, the language wasn't the primary issue. It was the culture issue. They kind of operated in their own spheres, right? And so here you have the apostles saying, we need to solve this problem. Choose uh, men from among you who are worthy, who can solve this problem. And who did the congregation choose? Seven Greeks. They're Jews, but they're Greek speakers. They're Hellenists. Uh, that's interesting. That's who they chose. Uh, men who, who would oversee this, who would have a very personal um, stake in seeing that the ministry is carried out well. But I think it shows a very great trust and lack of division and dissension by the fact that the, the Hebrews went along with it. They didn't say, hey, we want half Hebrews and half Greek speakers. They said, this is, this is, this is a good thing. So let's appoint these these seven Greeks, uh, Greek speakers. And so they're appointed, and uh, they lay hands on them, and they commission them to this work. And, uh, and, and so what happens is the apostles, look in there in verse 4, says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we've appointed these men. We've commissioned them to do this work, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what's the result? You see the result there in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Even uh, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so you have the word of God continuing with boldness to go forth. You see that the church is actually getting healthier. There was a little hiccup. There was a growing pain. There was a problem. But they addressed that problem. And the way they addressed that problem allowed them to keep their focus on preaching the gospel, which was their task in life, and deal with this social issue of the concern for the widows. Would you guys mind turning me down just a little? I've got a weird echo going on. I'm sorry. And so you, you have the church growing and being strengthened as a result of this. Crisis came, and the way they handled it allowed the church to grow and continue to be strengthened. And I think there's, there's application for us here. The, our, our message to the world is about the one true God who is holy and righteous and our creator. But... We are sinners. All mankind are sinners. That's our message about that problem and how God solved that problem in Jesus by sending His Son to die for us. That's our message. That's the primary core truth that we have to speak about to the world. That's what we need to be about. We need not to neglect social concerns like taking care of the, the, the Hellenistic widows. We need to take care of those things, but we must do so without taking our eye off, the, off of the ball, which is the proclamation of the gospel in the world. We must keep our eyes fixed on that. We must be about doing that. That needs to be uh, core, central truth of what we do. It's central to our mission. It's central to our ministry. There are all kinds of forms of legitimate ministry, and we must do those types of ministry, but we must have our eye on the ball. We must have our eye on the gospel. When any church or when any denomination takes their eye off of that target of the gospel, takes their eye off of that truth, the central core and their, their reason for being, when they take their eye off of that and they begin to major in taking care of the Hellenistic widows, the church is no longer functioning as the church. They've lost their message to the world. They've lost the truth of, of why they do this and why this matters, and they, they are in danger of slipping into what we call a social gospel. That is that we try and comfort people in this life, solve the human condition. We comfort them and pat them on the back right into hell. 
That is not the ministry of the church. The church must not neglect those things, but it must keep its eye fixed on the gospel. And so we're going to see that, that uh, that's what the church is going to do going forward. But this is an important thing for us to, to keep our eyes fixed on, that, that we not fall prey to that, that we not begin to major on the minors. Taking care of Hellenistic widows is very important, but not at the expense of the gospel. We must keep our eye fixed on the gospel. And we see that that's what the early church did. And the result was that they were doing the ministry to the Hellenistic widows and they were proclaiming the gospel and the word of God continued to increase. People are being added to their numbers right and left. Even the priests, the people who are the, the leaders in the Levitical system, in the, in the temple there, many of them were getting saved. And so this is a very effective gospel proclamation that the church is making. And maybe... Uh, we don't know exactly, but I, I kind of speculate that, you know, part of the, the issue that's going to come up here with Stephen is that so many of the priests were being saved. And so the religious leadership was being more and more threatened because the, the heart of, of what they were doing was kind of being removed because so many of their number were, were bailing and going to Christianity and they were following Christ and they were no longer, uh, they were no longer against Jesus and against this new movement. And so maybe that raised the, the, uh, the stakes a little bit for the leadership. But nevertheless, we move on to our second paragraph here, which starts in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we see Stephen's ministry. Stephen was, was appointed to, to take care of, uh, head up this ministry along with these six others, to take care of in-house issues, uh, administrative tasks, how to uh, make sure that the widows from different groups were equally taken care of and other such ministries. And here we see in verse 8, he was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is a different Philip, by the way, from the Philip who's among the twelve. And so here he is. He has a great ministry. He has a, a, a ministry of proclamation. He's preaching and he's teaching. and He's actually doing signs and wonders. He has a very visible, a very outward kind of ministry that he's doing. And people are coming to faith and people are rising up to dispute against him. But it's, a, it's interesting to me to see the reason uh, uh, Stephen was appointed to his ministry and what he was assigned to do and yet what it turns into how it multiplies and turns into a very great proclamation ministry. He's a preacher. He's even doing signs and wonders. He's, he's functioning in a very visible way. And so his ministry is a surprising ministry. And of course, op opponents rise and they dispute in, in that context. Then some of those, verse 9, who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. 
So he's, he's out there preaching. He's speaking publicly. And first of all, you have these opponents who rise up and want to argue with him. They want to debate or they want to shoot him down or they want to, they want to say, no, that's not right. And here's what Moses says. And they, they were arguing. They were opponents and they were, they were opponents in discourse. Right? And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with having opponents in discourse. I, I, rec- I, I uh, uh, am, am happy when I see that. Uh, I welcome that when it happens, that people want to actually stand for their position and say, no, it's not that, it's this, and make, a, make an argument. You can kind of deal with that, and that's where they start. Uh, but it very quickly devolves from there. You see that they couldn't answer his responses because of the wisdom uh, and the spirit with which he was answering. They would say something, and he would, no, uh, no, and he, he would answer, and he would, he would give them a response that was so wise and so clearly centered on God's word that they kind of had to regroup, couldn't answer. And so, of course, they move on beyond that, as so, so often happens in politics, right? Then they, so they couldn't answer, verse 10, then verse 11, they secretly instigated men or they bribed men uh, to, uh, to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Right? And so they couldn't, they couldn't defeat him in argumentation. They couldn't deal with the logic and the reason and the spirit of what he was saying. They couldn't deny that what he was saying came from Scripture. And so they changed their game plan. They didn't change their mind. They changed their game plan. And they decided instead to trump up some charges to misquote what he was saying, to misrepresent him. All through our passage, it's clear these are lies. They weren't accurately reporting what he said. They might have used some words that he used, or they might have talked about some of the topics that he talked about, but they brought false accusations. And they said that he was preaching against God's temple, and he was preaching against the law of Moses. Of course, Stephen wasn't preaching against either one of those things. But we're going to see next week as we cover his defense because he's, he's arrested here and he's going to spend a chapter defending himself, that is, explaining what his teaching really was about, explaining what the gospel really was about. He wasn't preaching against those things as they, as they thought. But in their minds, when those lies were spoken, when that tale was told that he's preaching against the temple, that he's preaching against Moses, those things were anathema to the Jews. Because the temple was sacred. This is what God has given us. This is how God has given us to worship Him in this place, in this temple. They were very proud that the temple was there in Jerusalem. And here is Stephen saying something about the temple that is now being interpreted or being lied about saying he's preaching against the temple. And so that's a very damning accusation. And even worse, perhaps, he's preaching against the law of Moses, they say. The law of Moses is what they were so proud of. That's, the, the, these two items, the temple and the law, were like the pillars of truth and, uh, and pride in their religion that they had. And so here, apparently, accusations are being made by Stephen against those two. At least that's the report. Very damning accusations. These are, these are rough charges that have been brought. And so with those charges being brought, look at, look at the last verse there, verse 15. Even in the light of those charges, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
it was clear that he was innocent. It was obvious that these things were made up. It was obvious that this person with the face of an angel, which kind of reflects back on Moses. Remember Moses spent time on the mountain with God and when he came down, what did people say? They're like, wow, you're really, your face is glowing. You, you know, his time in, in God's presence resulted in a change to his, his, his countenance, his face, his, he glowed and it was noticeable by all those around him. And it wasn't just noticeable, it was uncomfortable, wasn't it? They said, Mo- Moses, why don't, you, why don't you cover that up a little bit? That's kind of... It's too much for us. And so Moses would cover that up and, and he would put a veil on. So it was visible and it was disturbing. And you see that it's visible to all people here. They see that his face is like the face of an angel. There's something special about Stephen. There's something unique about him. There's something that doesn't line up with these charges. He, he, it's obvious that he's innocent. And, uh, and that's, that sets the context for our message that we're going to get to next week, which is Stephen's defense. And this, his defense is a, a sermon, and it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, which has a lot of long sermons in it. But this is the longest one. And we're going to come to that next week. But at this point, I, I want us to, to draw a few conclusions, to, to keep our eye on what's really going on in both of these episodes in this chapter. You have an attack on preaching, don't you? In the first one, you have an internal attack. You have a temptation to, uh, to take the, the preacher's attention off of preaching the Word to, to do other things that are important. But for the task that the apostles have been given, they're, they're of secondary importance. The primary task for the, the apostles was, was prayer and preaching. They were to be teaching God's Word. And so you had an, atta- uh, an attack in that way, an internal attack. And it wasn't vicious, but it was just a temptation. A temptation to focus on something else rather than the gospel. And then you have an outward attack from, uh, from actually the, the, the people from the outside, the Jewish religious leaders who hated what he was saying and they came against him and they tried to argue and they couldn't argue. So instead they made up lies about him so they could take him to court. So they sling some mud at him. So you have attacks on preaching in that way. They wanted him to stop preaching. They wanted his message to be shut up. They didn't want it to continue. Even the, even the priests, the people who should have known better, were being saved and were coming to follow Christ. And so yeah, you have an outward attack on the preaching and you see that uh, you're about to see the defense of that. But when they look at the preacher, when they look at Stephen, they see, obviously he's innocent. Obviously. Look at him. He has the face of an angel. It's clear to everyone that he's innocent. And so... I'm looking forward to talking about chapter 7, but right now we're going we're to conclude our story and think about these attacks, and I want us to think about the threats that exist today to preaching. I talked about some that, that are in Africa, and our situation, of course, is different than that, but uh, there are threats from without, aren't there? There are, of course, threats from without on, on our preaching, perhaps from the government. For example, in, in Canada, uh, it, certain things, if you preach about homosexuality and things like that. You could be reading from Scripture from the pulpit and you will be breaking the law and can be thrown in jail. That's, that's an outward pressure from the government, a pressure from without to, to quiet, to hush the preaching of God's Word. And even now with these new laws that are being proposed in California uh, regarding the same topic uh, uh, of homosexuality and LGBTQ issues, um, that if you as a, as a church preach certain things, that will be illegal. You could be reading it from Scripture. You could be reading from Paul who says, you were such as these, you were homosexuals, etc. You were, but in Christ you are different and you are changed. That is illegal according to this new law. 
that they're, that they're trying to pass. So you can have pressure from without to try and shut the preacher up, to, to, to try and quiet the message, and, and that's real. And those things are becoming more and more common. But there are other pressures from without that don't even come from the government. They don't have to because they come from our culture. They come from the culture looking in and saying, you Christians, you're such bigots. I can't even believe that you'd say that stuff about homosexuality or, or about uh, uh, living together or about abortion or about whatever the, the topic is, that they, they can bring charges and they can call names and they can, all of that, right? You're, you're bigots and you're homophobes and you're, you're closed-minded and you're irrelevant and you're, you're you know, just, just from the culture, those kind of attacks can be made on preaching. There are also attacks that can come from within, a, uh, and many of these attacks, I, I clearly see in evangelic, uh, evangelicalism broadly. When I when I look at the church, when I read about what's going on in different churches across the country, modern evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, really has snuck in these attacks so that they have become attacks from within uh, evangelicalism. And one is confusing emotionalism with spirituality. When you when you listen to certain kinds of preaching or you see certain kinds of, of, uh, of worship bands or uh, something like that, you can see that there's a shift that's been made to where if what I experienced at church was very emotionally engaging and, and uplifting, therefore it was a very spiritual and biblical encounter. And anything that does not result in that is kind of spiritually dead. So it's confusing spirituality with emotionalism, right? And that's a confusion of, uh, that comes from within. That, that arises from, from within. It's in our culture also, but in evangelicalism, from within. We, we can have that kind of confusion. And when that confusion exists, when we're looking for an emotional high, when we're looking for something that's engaging, that raises my heartbeat, that brings tears to my eyes, that makes me want to do this, when that's what I'm looking for, when that is the standard, that's going to change the way I preach the word. That's, that's going to change the way uh, someone trying to cater to that sort of experience uh, is going to, to proclaim the Bible. And they're going to talk about much more emotional issues. They're going to stay away from those things that might have to do with understanding, might have to do with thinking, might have to do with hard messages like sin or hell, things like that, because those are either uh, emotionally you know, negative, or they don't produce an uplifting kind of experience. And so we'll stay away from those things. Instead, we'll preach things that are going to be encouraging and uplifting and heartening for you and going to bring a tear to your eye and really like a good love song. And that's an exchange that's happened with an evangelicalism, exchanging what is true spirituality, what is the tre- uh, preaching and teaching of the gospel, what is the preaching and teaching of scripture, some of which is very hard and is not complimentary to us, and does not uplift us. Exchanging that in our minds for emotionalism, misidentifying the two. So that's a danger from within. There's another one. It's very closely related. It's a desire for entertainment. And you see this in, in a, lot of, uh, a lot of churches and a lot of um, uh, movements within evangelicalism that, that the church needs to be entertaining. Right? And there really needs to be a good uh, you know, guitar solo or, or something in a service. There's, there, there, there needs to be the, 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 the smoke and the, the, something that's got to be entertaining or a very funny preacher uh, or you know, who's great at telling jokes or can really engage you and, it's, and it's, a, it's, it's entertainment. And a church that's entertaining is going to grow. 
And so when you have that philosophy from within evangelicalism, that's going to affect the way many preachers preach the word. And so those are just a couple of things. And again, those are, those are things that I see more in broader evangelicalism than I see here. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily that I see those kinds of things here. But they're in our culture, meaning our evangelical culture. And you, you can go and, and buy a book and read it, and you'll see it in the book. Or you can, you can uh, you know, go to a concert, you'll see it at a concert, or you'll, you'll, you'll read it, you know, different articles. And this is the culture of evangelicalism heading this way, and it's a threat, an internal threat to preaching. Because it, it tempts the preacher and it tempts the church to want to preach in a different way that's going to be emotional and entertaining rather than the truth of Scripture, rather than leading to a deeper understanding of who Christ is and why we need Him. And so our concern here at Parkside, our concern is that we remain faithful, that we keep our eye on the ball, that we preach the gospel, that we proclaim what is true from Scripture about us, about God, and about how we can know Him. We want, to, we want to remain faithful. That's what we want to preach. And there are temptations, and many times they're subconscious. I really wish I was very funny and could just crack people up, and sometimes I try and it just doesn't work, and I'm like, wow. Right? That's, that's a, I, I wish I could do that. But that's not the focus. We want to focus on preaching Christ from all of Scripture in every sermon. That's what we want to focus on. And so that means not giving in to societal pressures. That means not giving in to government pressures if and when they come to us, but preaching what's true anyway, preaching the gospel anyway. That means resisting the aspects of culture that have crept into modern evangelicalism broadly. We don't want to create emotionalism. We don't want to create entertainment and call that the gospel or call that uh, the spirit moving. Spirit doesn't always move emotionally. He can, but he doesn't always. We want to resist equating those two things. The apostles and Stephen knew that preaching Christ was to be the bedrock of all their ministry, even when that meant that they had to recruit help to meet other needs that were very important, or even when it meant facing the wrath of their opponents, government officials and whatnot. And so the same must be true at PBF. We must focus our efforts on preaching Christ from all of Scripture as the foundation for all other ministry efforts. The gospel is the foundation for all other ministry efforts that we make and as the criterion by which we determine what ministries we will or will not engage in and how much energy we will or will not give them based upon the gospel. We need to have those criteria in place. We need to operate according to them. We need to keep our eyes on the ball. What the Jewish religious leaders didn't like about Stephen's message was that he was telling them that the Old Testament was not an end in itself. They thought it was. They thought the law of Moses was an end in itself. They thought the temple was an end in itself. And here's Stephen preaching, no, those are big giant signs, arrows that are pointing to Jesus. The real point is Christ. The point is not the temple. The point is Christ. The point is not the law. The law is pointing to Christ. And they hated that message. And that's why they came against him. uh, Because he was pointing beyond those uh, those signs and pointing to Christ himself. That's kind of like when we, uh, Andy and I were in Burundi and we were going to see this famous rock, the Livingston Rock. Any of you know the, uh, the biography of, of uh, um, the famous missionary, uh, uh, Dr. Livingston? He was traveling in Africa trying to find the, the headwaters of the Nile. Or, uh, of the Nile. And he was, uh, he was traveling all over. He'd been lost for two years, or they hadn't heard from him in two years. So they sent a man to go find him, and he found him at this rock in Burundi, 
like 15 kilometers from where our hotel was. And so we're driving out there, very interesting drive, and I hope we get to see some pictures of that. And there's this sign that says Livingston Rock, right? And it points this way. And so Andy and I are thinking, okay, well, we turn off here, drive for a while. Well, we did. I mean, we drove about 150 yards, and it was right there in the neighborhood is this big rock. But, but what, what, the, what the Jews had done is they had gotten to the sign, and they had set up camp. This is all there is. This is what's important. This is the end in itself. Look at this sign. Isn't it a wonderful sign? And they were stuck there. They were stopped right there. And here comes Stephen. And he says, you're standing at a sign and it points over there. Why don't you go in the back of that neighborhood and you'll see the rock? This big rock. And that's kind of what they had missed. They, they, they knew the Bible and they loved the Bible. But they did not see that it was an arrow pointing to Christ. And so in our teaching, in our preaching, in our own Bible reading, we want to keep our eyes fixed on that. The Bible is not an end in itself. It points us to Christ. It tells us who He is. It tells us all the things, the expectations beforehand that pointed to Him about uh, about who God is, about who we are as sinners, about Christ as the Redeemer, as, as the one who paid the penalty for us, that by faith in Him we could, we could be forgiven, we could have peace with God. And then it tells us all the, all the things that are the results of the gospel, the way we treat people, the way we, the way we, uh, the way we treat uh, the poor, the way we uh, obey in our lives, the way we live our lives, the way we uh, do our marriages, the way we raise children, the way we everything, all of the application in Scripture uh, in the New Testament is the result of the gospel in our lives. And so even that is an arrow that points back to who Jesus is. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on that. We need to uh, resist the temptations uh, from without and, and from within so that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ himself. And that's because Christ is the foundation of the church and he is the goal. He is the end. He is the one to which we are heading. He is our foundation and the one to which we are heading. So let us preach Christ always. Let us search the Bible, not as an end in itself so that I can, I can know better the, the little details as if that's the end in itself. But let me lift my head up and see that those little details are pointing to Christ, testifying to the Savior. We need to do that. We need to keep that as our focus. And so let us pursue uh, the implications of the gospel and how we take care of one another and minister to the world. But let us do so with our eyes and our hearts always focused on Christ as the foundation and the goal of what we do. That we don't take our eyes off of Christ onto these other implications of the gospel out here, but keep them fixed on Christ. And that's the message for us from Acts chapter 6. Regardless of the threat to their preaching... They wanted to keep their eyes and their message fixed on Christ. And so uh, the challenge for us as preachers is to do that. The challenge for us as connect group leaders and as Bible study leaders and as Sunday school teachers is to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and direct our people towards Christ. And the challenge for us, for you sitting out there, is when you listen on a Sunday, when you listen at Bible study and participate at connect group and, and all, when you read your Bible and study it on your own, may it not be just so you can learn some more details or, or some more things here, but lift your head up and see Hey, this is a sign that points to Christ, that you would look to him, that you would look to the gospel, that you would give God glory for what he has done in your life, in Christ, by the gospel every day. And as we do that together as a congregation, Christ will be lifted up again and again and continually, and we will be keeping our eyes fixed on the target, the goal, which is Christ himself. 
And so I encourage all of us to do that, that we would keep our eyes fixed in that way, in our own reading, in public together as we study, that Christ would be the center, that Christ would be the center of our speech to one another, our study of the Word. Let's glorify Christ in that way. Let's pray together. Father, we do lift up Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us, for the fact that he, our mediator, has paid the penalty for our sins, that we might have forgiveness in Christ, that we might have his righteous account applied to ours, that we might have peace with you and stand before you, though, though we are sinful people, yet that has been wiped clean in your eyes because of what Jesus did. I thank you for that. I thank you for that picture of baptism that we had this morning, of being washed, of going under and dying and coming up clean and new. The water didn't do it. It's just water. But it's a picture of what Jesus did, making us new, cleansing us that we might stand in your presence, that we might come boldly uh, in this way into your presence, that we might lay our requests before you, that we might speak openly of you, that that we might know peace with God. Thank you for that. May our message be that. Our message from the pulpit and in all of our studies and our own Bible reading and our conversation with one another and our parenting of our children and our encouragement of, of one another. May Christ be the center. May we speak of the gospel often. May we keep our eyes fixed on that prize, on that goal. Father, thank you for your goodness. I pray for your blessing on each one here and those who are traveling because of the wedding and uh, who will be back. I pray for safety for them. pray that we would glorify you this week. We look forward to seeing how you will work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen and amen. We will have a family who will be uh, happy to pray with you if you want to come up forward and pray. Otherwise, God bless you all and you are dismissed.